Well, let's uh, turn now to Scripture, to 1 Kings chapter 9. And um, we're going to read the whole chapter. And uh, let's hear God's word. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My, ha- my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and rules, Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by by it will be astonished and will hiss and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord has brought all his, this disaster on them. At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress, timber and gold, as much as he desired, King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. When Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore he said, what kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house, and the Milo, and the wall of uh, Jerusalem, and Hazor, and Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer, and burned it with fire, and, and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city, and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer, and Lord Beth Horon, and Baalath, and Tamar, in the wilderness, in the land of Judah, and all the store cities that Solomon had, and the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion, all the people who are left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, Their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves. So that they, uh, and so they are to this day. 
but all the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers, they were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work. 550 who had charge of the people who carried on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Three times a year Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion-Geber, which is near uh, near Eloth, on the shore of the Red Sea, in the land of Edom, and Hiram sent with uh, with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon, and they went to Ophir, and brought from there gold, four hundred twenty talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. So this chapter brings to an end the, the, the story of the building of the temple. And, uh, and that's, that story of the building of the temple has occupied a large proportion of the story of Solomon. Uh, which of course tells you that the building was, this temple is an important uh, part of the redemptive history. And, uh, <clears throat> and in this chapter... Um, you may have missed it as we're reading it, but, but actually the word building, uh, building, uh, building stuff is a, a recurring theme all the way through. Uh, several times the word build or built or, or whatever as, uh, is mentioned. He, he built the house of the Lord in verse 1. He built his own house in verse 2. He built the millow, which seems to be some kind of defensive rampart system around the city. Um, which uh, David established, uh, 1 Samuel 5, 2 Samuel 5, um, and the walls on that defensive rampart. Um, he's built various cities in Israel for different purposes. He's built the altar of the Lord uh, in the temple, uh, part of the temple complex. And then at the end, he builds this fleet of ships. So lots of building going on. Uh, and, and this is the kind of thing that kings do, isn't it? Uh, when you've got power and authority, you start building stuff. And uh, they want to build things. There are lots of reasons why people in power want to do that sort of thing. Um, lots of uh, leaders of nations want to build something that uh, uh, is some sort of monument to your, your reign or your rule. Um, we can think of many politicians who have started off building projects and uh, it gets known as so-and-so's building or whatever. Uh, you may remember Boris's bridge or something. It never quite came to fruition. Uh, but he had this thing about London having a, a bridge. And it was called Boris's bridge. Um, and maybe good or ill, for good or ill, it didn't happen. But, uh, you know, sometimes it can just be for that sort of personal reason. that You just want to leave a, uh, a monument to yourself and your reign and your uh, rule. Uh, sometimes it can genuinely be for the good of the people. You're doing something, you're doing infrastructure projects uh, to make life better for the people. Uh, and maybe it could be a mixture of all of those things. Uh, you know, a monument to yourself, but infrastructure for the people. And um, There's lots of reasons why people uh, build stuff when they're in power. Um, <clears throat> 
However, though Solomon is doing all this building, there is a key question that the Lord asks of Solomon. Um, A key issue that he raises with Solomon, verses 4 and 5. And uh, he says this, As for you, if you will walk before me, as David your father walks, with integrity of heart and uprightness, uh, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Um, To the Lord, more important than any building project is the question of whether Solomon will remain faithful to the covenant God has made. Uh, The covenant that God has made with his father David and before that with Moses. And this is important for Solomon personally, but it's also important for the nation of Israel, for the whole people, because as we've noted before, as the shepherd goes, so the flock goes. As the king goes, so the people go. And so the word is to Solomon particularly, to lead the people in being faithful to, uh, to, to the Lord. Well, this passage falls into two parts. So I've only got two points, really, this evening. Um, or two sections. The first part in verses 1 to 9 is shorter, um, but perhaps more important than the second part. And the second part, verses 10 to 28, is a summary of all those building works that he's, uh, he's been involved in in the, last, in the previous 20 years. So the first thing is, uh, this, these verses 1 to 9... Uh, shows us a call to be faithful to God's covenant. It's a call to Solomon to be faithful to God's covenant. The Lord appears to Solomon a second time. Um, The first time was in chapter 3, remember? Uh, Solomon has just come to the throne and the Lord has appeared to him in a dream and he says to Solomon, what can I do for you? And Solomon He doesn't ask for power and riches and long life and so on. Rather, he asks for wisdom. And so the Lord appears in this dream. And I I presume that the appearance here was of the same nature, though it doesn't actually quite say that. Uh, Perhaps it was a dream that he had, and the Lord appeared to him again in a dream. It's worth just noting, pausing for a moment, that it's at least seven years between those two appearances of the Lord in a dream, at least seven years. And, uh, you know, so there are, these kinds of appearances of the Lord are not very common. They're never very common in the Bible. And it's not particularly routine for Solomon. Solomon's a key, you know, he's a key figure in the history of the Bible, but he doesn't experience these manifestations or appearances of the Lord very often at all. Um, and that's worth just pondering uh, because the thing that you notice about the Bible and about the, the, the amazing appearances that God makes in the Bible is that they are always associated with some significant redemptive historical event, something particular that the Lord is about to do. 
And, and here Solomon, uh, the Lord, Lord speaks to Solomon once again at the end of this um, building project. And he begins, the Lord begins by uh, acknowledging the prayer that uh, Solomon has just uh, prayed. He's prayed quite a lengthy prayer in chapter 8. You may remember that prayer. He started, starts off with praise to God for his faithfulness over the last 480 years as uh, he has led the people from slavery in Egypt to the point of rest. Uh, this time of rest where the temple is being built and the temple in, in a sense signifies a new phase in the history of Israel. And, uh, and Solomon's prayer uh, continues with this plea to him that the Lord would continue uh, to be faithful to his people in generations to come. Um, that he would particularly have his eye upon the the temple in Jerusalem, they continually have, and that's a, you know, it's a picture, isn't it, of God paying attention to his people. And always paying attention to his people. And then the bulk of the prayer, you may remember this, is about the potential future sins of the people. Most of them, there's a couple that are not, but a couple of requests that are not that, but most of them are about the potential future sins of the people, both individually and collectively. And what Solomon is doing is he's praying that, the, that as the people turn away from their sins, that the Lord would continue in faithfulness and forgive them their sins and restore them. So it's almost as though Solomon is anticipating failure of his people and uh, we uh, we noted last time that the, 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 the content of those prayers is not just plucked out, ran, out at random it, out in, in Solomon's mind but actually what he's doing he's taking the, the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28 Leviticus 26 and he's praying them for the peoples. And thinking, well, if, if, if the people fall into these sins, oh Lord, hear my prayer and grant to them for, uh, forgiveness, grant to them repentance. May they turn to you and come and receive that forgiveness once again. Don't abandon them. And he's pleading and praying a covenantal prayer. Now this is a, it's a wonderful thing to pray, isn't it? That... Um, you know, when you turn to the Lord, that the Lord will forgive. It's a wonderful truth of the gospel. That when you turn to the Lord, there is forgiveness for you. If you truly come to him. Uh, and after all, it's, we should expect that we fall into sin. Because uh, our, our flesh is weak. And the sin that is present in the world just makes that worse. Just compounds that. It's, uh, and so this... Uh, the Lord is able to provide ways of cleansing and renewal and restoration. Um, and we should pray for that. We should pray that uh, God will forgive our sins, all your sins personally, our sins collectively. Um, well, oh well, a good, yeah, it's a good prayer, isn't it? But the thing is, there seems to be this expectation that the people of Israel are going to fall, are going to fall into sin. 
But there seems to be this kind of cloud gathering over Israel, even though they've just celebrated, and it's been an extended celebration. Uh, the ESV says it was seven days, but other, tra- other various readings may put it at 14 days. You know, they couldn't stop. And they just had a great celebration. They built this temple, and it's wonderful, marvelous, and beautiful, and everything. And uh, so encouraging to the people. Uh, and yet, there's this kind of cloud gathering over the people. Um, well, this note of warning continues now in chapter 9 from God himself to Solomon. And it consists of this call to God, from God to Solomon to be faithful in verses 4 and 5 that we read a moment ago. And it's a, he, he starts off with a promise. If you're faithful, then I'll, I will continue to be with you. And all the promises I made to David um, will be fulfilled. Never la- You'll never lack a man to sit on the throne. And, uh, but then there's a rather alarming warning section from 6 through to 9. And what's clear is that this, the promise that he makes about his name being in the temple forever is not unconditional. It's actually conditional because we see that in verses 6 through to 9 because he says the opposite in verses 6 to 9. He says failure will be, bring destruction. And the loss will be a, a threefold loss. So as one of the commentators points this out, a threefold loss. There will be a loss of land, verse 7, and Israel will no longer possess the promised land that physical piece of land. Verse 8, there will be a loss of temple. Not just lost, but destroyed. Rubble. Ruins. And then the loss of the throne. And, this, and I think this is uh, implicit in verses 4 to 5. That faithfulness will ensure that a man will be on the throne. And unfaithfulness will lead to a man no longer being on the throne. Now, any of you know your Bible history, you'll know that all of these things worked out. Israel was carted off into exile under the Babylonians. They lost the temple. It was destroyed in 586 BC. And, um, and they lost all power. There was a nominal king put in place and uh, there were periods in intertestamental history where, where the Israelites seemed to take control again, but basically the Romans were in charge thereafter. And Israel never really owned the throne, as it were. All of that happened. So what, what's the lesson from this for us? Well, I think the main lesson is to do with this notion of apostasy. Apostasy. Um, in other words, a falling away from the grace of God in the covenant. Now we have uh, recently we've looked, we've looked at this whole question of apostasy in our midweek Bible study in Hebrews chapter 6. And it's important to say at this point that there's, there is a distinction between uh, full-blown apostasy and a bit of backsliding. Right? Two are not the same thing. Uh, backsliding is when a Christian goes through a period of discouragement and doubt, a flagging of zeal, 
And uh, you begin to see this practically in the loss of discipline in the Christian life. People stop praying. um, They stop reading their Bible so regularly. uh, They maybe even stop coming to worship. And you see this kind of backsliding kind of habit that develops. And what's happening is their discouragement, uh, in their discouragement, they're succumbing to certain temptations to give attention to other things in their life. And they may be good things. That's that's the the kind of difficult thing about it. They may be good things that you're giving your attention to, but anything that takes away from your devotion to the Lord is actually an evil thing. And uh, and so that's that's backsliding. Uh, But apostasy goes much further than that because... Now, that's the state when someone who was, who was once in church, maybe professed faith in church, enjoying all the external benefits of the Christian life, fellowship, uh, being convicted of you know, the word of God and be, you know, being blessed by the word of God, uh, apparently having some sort of experience of the working of the Holy Spirit in your life, is what Hebrews 6 tells us. And yet, there comes a point in their life where they openly repudiate everything they ever claimed to believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. And, um, and so in, in Old Testament terms, this means no longer having a heart to follow God, no desire to keep his commandments, uh, and even maybe turning to other religions or, or Having a syncretistic view, just adding other things. This is what happens in the Old Testament. You have other gods or other places of worship developing uh, and little idols that people make to bow down and worship to. And that's in the Old Testament. In the New New Testament terms, it would be someone who used to be a member of the church but now denies the saving work and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed... um, Rejects any allegiance to Jesus Christ any longer. That's apostasy. And it's apostasy that's being warned of here in 1 Kings chapter 9. A practical repudiation of God and his ways. And God is saying that the only end in view for them is the removal of all that is promised. And so here's a practical question. Um, it's quite a tricky question. When you see somebody drifting off in the Christian life, how can you tell whether that person is backsliding or uh, they are apostate? And the answer is, you can't immediately tell. You don't know. You can't tell. You'll only know when that person absolutely repudiates Jesus Christ. And that may not come immediately. Uh, Rejection of Christ always begins inside before it comes out. It always begins in the heart first before it comes out in the actions and manifests itself in backsliding. And so that means we always have to be uh, vigilant about the state of our hearts. Not just vigilant about what we do, whether we're attending church or reading our Bible or whatever, but the state of our hearts, how we're feeding on God's word, how we're loving the Lord Jesus Christ, 
how we're seeking his face regularly. Um, it begins, we need to be careful about that. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's the first lesson, I think. The first lesson is apostasy from this, warnings about apostasy. A second lesson is, is that God, in giving these warnings at this point, is warning Solomon before it happens, not coming to him afterwards. And, and this is wonderfully kind of God. Sometimes look at these warnings and you, you know, they can be quite scary. <laughs> um, and uh, you think, why, why does God put these things in here? <laughs> but actually they're there because of his kindness. He actually wants you to pay attention and to give consideration to the things that really matter so that you can know that further blessing. Now, if you're reading Hebrews, as many of you are in our midweek meeting, uh, you'll know the number of times that the writer to Hebrews says, pauses and he says, uh, let's consider this, let's think about this, let's be careful about this. Uh, be careful with your hearts in Hebrews chapter 3. Beware of that heart of unbelief that kind of begins to creep in. And so it's a wonderfully kind thing that God does to us. God spells out what's required um, of us and warns what will happen if he doesn't pay attention, uh, Solomon doesn't pay attention. So the warning is actually for his good, for his safety, for the safety of the people of Israel. And it's a wonderful thing. That's what parents do, isn't it? Parents do this all the time with their children um, until they're old enough. Um, but, you know, when I, when I t- this afternoon we were taking our, our dog out for a walk and, uh, in Elmden Park, and there's a, there's a route, and we took the route this afternoon, that goes past this little kiddies' playground. There's hardly anybody there today because of the rain. And, um, you know, it's got slides, it's got climbing frames, and it's got a roundabout and all sorts of fun things to do. And when it's busy and you walk past it, uh, you often hear people, uh, you know, parents who are within the kind of enclosure saying to their kids, be careful, don't slip, don't fall, you'll hurt yourself if you don't watch out, you know, and, and all this kind of thing. And, you, and, and the, the kids are kind of like fed up with this because <laughs> it happens all the time. But it's necessary, isn't it? For, and parents do this. Parents have to do this. Because Why? Because they're being kind to their children. They, want, they don't want their children to, to fall and to, to make a mistake and to smash their head in on a pole or something, as I did once uh, as a kid, uh, not under supervision. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's a kindness the parents are exercising to their children to do this. this is, and this is how God deals with us. He gives us these warnings as a kindness to help us to pay attention. And, you know, this is God's covenant. And his covenant blessings are, come with the, the promises that are wonderful and the warnings that maybe scare us, but actually are necessary and a kindness for us. And we need to pay attention uh, to what God is saying. So friends, you know, is there something in your heart this evening 
about your relationship to God that you need to give attention to. Nobody else can see it. Nobody else knows. Maybe even your husband or your wife, if you have one, doesn't knows about this. But is there something in your heart that you need to give attention to so that you might remain faithful to God? The New Testament is full of such warnings. To take care, to pay attention, to examine your heart. And so let's do it. Well, here's the second section. Uh, and here we have the, in verses 10 through to 28, the ongoing business of government. And I think here there's an applied warning. Uh, what we have here is... Uh, uh, a number of building thing, things that Solomon built. Um, and it kind of falls roughly into four categories. Uh, verses 10 to 14, there's a bit of politics between him and Hiram. Um, you might remember Hiram. Hiram supplied uh, many of the raw materials, uh, gold and cedar trees and various other things, uh, for the temple build. And uh, in return, Solomon was to supply foodstuffs to Hiram's household. And, um, and one commentator suggests that um, Solomon must have run up significant debts. I mean, it wasn't an equal trade. And, uh, you know, when you think about the 120, uh, ta- what was it? 120 talents of silver um, that uh, Hiram has supplied to, to Solomon, that's a huge amount. It's about four tons of gold. Which, uh, I'm sorry, a bit nerdy. I worked out it's about 200 million pounds worth of gold <laughs> in today's money. Um, but this is, uh, so this is what, uh, uh, so Solomon seems to have run up some significant debts with all his gold he's receiving and all the materials. And so, it, although it doesn't say this here, that may be a reason why Solomon offers Hiram these 20 cities. Um, but Hiram goes and has a look to see his great lands that he's received and discovers they're not up to much (laughs) probably dead, dry, poor places that nobody wants and he's not impressed and he he pleads with uh, Solomon my brother, why have you given me these? (laughs) however, he's not dissuaded as we'll see in a minute and he carries on and accepts it the second section is 15 to 24 is to do with the defense of the realm it's all about building cities and defenses um, and various other things uh, and having storehouses and so on uh, against potential enemies the third section is, is one verse verse 25 it's to do with religion it's to do with uh, Solomon's faithfulness in ensuring that um, the, uh, uh, the worship three times a year takes place uh, verse 25 and then the last section is to do with commerce in verses 26 to 28, uh, where he bu- builds this fleet of ships uh, to operate and expand on trading opportunities to the south of Israel. So to the south of Israel, you have the, the, the Red Sea, uh, uh, where um, uh, there's currently a port today. Uh, it used to be called Aqaba. I'm not sure, sure if it still is. Um, it's... Uh, and, and from there, Solomon could do trading to the south. But he doesn't have any sailors, so he needs Hiram's help. And Hiram's on a, a seaboard city. Uh, he has plenty of uh, seamen, and he sends some of them to help and to train uh, Solomon's fleet. 
and Hiram gets to share in the trade. Uh, so this huge amount of gold starts coming back from the trading. And so in the end, Hiram's not too, dis- do- too upset about these 20 cities that are not very good because there are other ways that he's been blessed by this relationship. Now, all of these things uh, are legitimate things for kings to engage in. As I said, kings like to build stuff. It's the business of kingship. However, here's the implied warning for this. You may remember some of the instructions that were given to Moses in Deuteronomy 17 about future kings. And at that point there was no king, but the Lord says there will be a king. But here's my restriction on them. In verse 17, Deuteronomy 17, 17, he says, The king is not to acquire for himself excessive amounts of gold, nor excessive numbers of horses or chariots, nor is he to have many wives. And you begin to see all of these things happening in the life of Solomon already. This new fleet of ships is raking in the gold from the south. And the alarm bells should be ringing. And here once again we have a man who, uh, we see a man, on the one hand a man who on the face of it, uh, outwardly at least, seems to be utterly faithful to God. Doing what is right, worshipping God, making sacrifices to God, leading and encouraging the people to engage with this worship. And yet, there are, on the other hand, there are indications that Solomon's heart is drifting away from the Lord. The pursuit of money and gold. The pursuit of women. Uh, did you notice that he seems to have got himself married to the daughter of Pharaoh? That was mentioned back in chapter 3. Now it's mentioned again in verse 17. And these things are a snare to any heart. The love of money. The love of many women. For men. So as we think about Solomon carefully. We should think about him carefully. The start of his life is a great encouragement. He seeks wisdom from God. He wants to do the right thing. By God. He has zeal for the Lord and for his glory. He has a desire to serve and use his gifts for God, but beware of the weeds of apostasy that begin to sneak in. And you and I are susceptible to those weeds. We've got to do weeding in the garden, haven't we? Regularly. One of my favorite illustrations of this. If you don't do the weeding, your garden just goes in chaos. People's lives have been gone into chaos because they've not weeded their garden, the garden of their hearts. And paid attention to the things that really matter. Remember God. Obey his commandments. Examine your heart carefully. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, the warnings that are given to us. Lord, it scares us sometimes to read of them. We wonder why we should pay attention. And then we, we look at the state of our own hearts. And we realize yeah, we need those warnings. Thank you for your sustaining grace and your help. Uh, in the face of all kinds of temptation. We pray you'd help us to be faithful to you. And we pray you help us to, to know the blessings of the covenant relationship we have through Jesus Christ. 
In his name we pray. Amen.